0: This will be actually, we are covering the whole chapter this morning. So we have a little bit to read here. Uh, and, and truthfully, looking forward uh, to next Sunday, as I was reading for next week, um, we are going to cover all of chapter one in one sermon. Not because I'm rushing out of the book, uh, but because of some narrative and some points and the flow. Um, yes, yeah, we'll be finishing. So this will be our last two weeks in the gospel according to John. Uh feels like this was kind of one of the quicker books we've gone through. Um, I did miss the mark. Today is should have been Easter. <laughs> I was looking at uh, the songs and the passage, and I missed Easter service by about four weeks. Today would have been the perfect Easter service, but, you know, it is what it is. We'll, we'll come back to the resurrection in another four weeks or so. Uh, after this, like I said, though, since this is our last two weeks in the Gospel according to John, uh, we have about a three-week break wherein... Um, I want to do some individual sermons. The first one will be on the topic of prayer and sanctification. Uh, So that will be our first. Uh, The next, um, I was asked to do a sermon on church membership and the importance of the church. And so we'll do uh, a sermon on that. And then um, um, again, as I was asked to do a a sermon on offerings. And so we'll do those three sermons. And then uh, we will go into First Timothy will be our next book. First. Timothy. I think it is a good book, George and I agreed, in the life of our church where we're at uh, um, as we s- seek to try to uh, put others in places and responsibility in the church and have them exercise their giftings. 1 uh, Timothy is a good book for us to revisit, uh, you know, considering offices in the church and so forth, okay? All right, so with all that said, let us read. We have some reading to do. Chapter 20. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been laying around his head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed, for as they yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stood da- uh, stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, uh, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands... And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray for the blessing of God. Lord, we too were like sheep scattered abroad as those who lived our lives not submitting to the Lordship of Christ but making ourselves the God of our own lives. But yet, like as we will see with Mary and Thomas and the disciples, as the great shepherd, you sought us out. You sought us out in order to cultivate within us that newness of life which only comes from you, that newness of life that imparts faith, that newness of life which by we see you with the eye of faith, and confess you as our Lord and our God. So Lord, this morning we do ask you, as we come to hear this word, the the good news of your glorious resurrection, Lord, we would come as those who are in the midst of the presence of our Savior, our resurrected Savior, that you would guide our hearts and minds towards you this morning, that our hope would be strengthened in what truly has been gained in your resurrection, that we are those who not only are made one with your death, but we are those who are made one with your life. And it is because you rose from the grave we too also will raise. And because you too have ascended into glory, we too will as well. Lord, that is our hope. Strengthen our faith in that hope this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So yes, as we come to a near and end this morning in our study through the gospel according to John, we not only are beginning a new chapter, chapter 20, but, and importantly, we are coming to the beginning or genesis of the new creation itself. Or even said this is the second genesis. For as we saw the past two weeks, it was Yahweh incarnate, the second Adam, who entered into not the garden of paradise, but the garden of the skull in order to, cru- to crush both the serpent of old and death itself through death. And by doing so, by offering up Himself as, as God's Lamb who would take away the sin of the world, God incarnate, like when He breathed His Spirit upon life into the first Adam, breathed forth His Spirit of life once again as He breathed His last. But this time He did so in order to signify the recreating of mankind Through faith and regeneration. Therefore, as the Apostle John was illustrating our Lord's death, what he was preparing us for was the budding forth of the newness of life, which we will see this morning in Christ's resurrection. Or said differently, it is the dawn of this third day's new morning that ushers in the beginning of a new day, a day wherein There is no curse. A day where there is no enmity between God and man. And even more, it is this day, this new day, as Hebrews 4 says, that by faith we enter into and find rest. Moreover, this new day is the day that the first Adam failed to enter into while in the garden. And this new day is the day that Israel of old looked forward to. But it is Christ who, in having finished His work of redemption as the second Adam, has entered into this eternal day, this new day of God's rest. just as Hebrews 4.10 asserts, For He, Christ, has entered into His, the Father's rest, and Himself has also rested from His works as God did from His. Thus simply, it is when we come to faith in Christ, that we too enter into the dawn of this eternal day of God's rest, this day that Christ has merited and entered into himself, and subsequently we await its full noonday brightness when we pass from this life and enter into glory. But now, why am I laboring this point about this new day? is because it is this very theme of the dawn of God's day of rest or the dawn of the new creation, which the Apostle John picks up on right away when he illustrates the morning of our Lord's resurrection by stating, Now the first day of the week, uh, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Therefore, As Mary approached her Lord's grave right before the dawn of the new day, what John is seeking to press upon our minds is, as he asserted back in the beginning of chapter 1, that the darkness did not, nor could not, comprehend or overcome the light. Or said in different words, though it may have seemed, as if the kingdom of darkness, even Satan himself, had overcome the Lord of glory while he lie in the grave, the light of God's dawning from the grave cannot nor could not be held back, just as the darkness cannot hold back the light. Or even with echoes reaching back to Genesis 1, as the void and darkness dominated both creation and the hearts of Christ's disciples for two days while he laid bodily in the grave. On this new day, or the first day of the new creation, God said again, let there be light. And Jesus, the light of life, thus rose and overcome the darkness of sin. Hence, as the sun rose on this new day, along with Christ from the grave, this first day, this new day, Sunday, wherein God's rest had been obtained by the second Adam, this day would henceforth be called the Lord's Day. That's why we no longer worship on the old day of rest, Saturday is because God's people are no longer commanded to work in order to enter into God's rest, which is what was signified by the working of six days and resting on the seventh to Adam. But again, as Hebrews 4 says, we who have believed do enter that rest, God's rest, present tense. Thus simply, we do not strive by our works, to obtain God's rest or eternal life. But we, by faith, already possess it because of Christ's work. And it is from faith that we then strive to do the works of God to the glory of God, which is exactly what the new week of the new creation signifies, resting on the first and working the subsequent six. So then, with this sort of cosmic context in place. Again, as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, approaches Christ's grave at dawn, as she approaches it, what she notices right away is that the stone had been taken away, and after running back from getting Peter and John, what we are told is that Peter went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lined with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, when considering the scene of Jesus' garments placed as as they are in his tomb, there there is no shortage of differing interpretations or theories. Uh, there, I know there's a popular sermon I hear all the time on this: the handkerchief. It's if it's left on a plate or something like that, or you know, out, folded neatly. That means the person's coming again, and this signifies Christ coming again, or things of that sort. But where I think we best find some sort of explanation or meaning for the move stoned in garments is in contrast to the resurrection of Lazarus, which was a prototype of what was to come with Christ's resurrection. For the same Apostle John, who was looking into Jesus' empty and neat tomb, was also at Lazarus' resurrection. And what he saw there were the people who had to remove the stone in front of Lazarus' tomb. And after Jesus called him forth, others also had to unbind the cloths and the, that were around him, thus leaving the linens all strewn around. But, as Je- but at Jesus' tomb, there was no need to find people to remove the stone. There was no need to call Jesus forth, and there was no mess, but only the signs of someone once being here. Or said differently, it is here... That John finally grasps and believes Jesus' words at Lazarus' resurrection, that he is the resurrection and the life. For Jesus himself burst open his own grave. And it was Jesus himself who overcame the grips of sin and death. And even more, it was Jesus himself who called himself forth into the newness of life. Therefore, what was prophetically signified? At the resurrection of Lazarus, that being in him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men, was fully realized in his self-resurrection as God. Moreover, what the special signification of Jesus' face cloth being removed is meant to echo back to is the veil that covered the glory of Moses' face. As one commentator asserts, like Moses, who put aside the veil when he ascended to meet God in glory, Jesus, the new Moses, the greater Moses, has put aside his veil as he ascends into the presence of the Father to receive from him the glory which he had with him before the world was made. Therefore, what this moment is meant to signify is Christ's desire to no longer veil His glory as He did before His resurrection. But even more, it is the fulfillment of His prayer to the Father that His humanity would come to partake in and receive the very divine glory which He possesses with the Father as God. But as we progress in this scene of the empty tomb, What John proceeds to describe is what Mary then sees when he states, And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, this scene too, with the two angels sitting on each end of where Jesus' body had been laid, also echoes back to Moses. More narrowly, the Ark of the Covenant, wherein Moses' instructions were to make two cherubim of gold of hammered work uh, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Even more, the place between the two angels was known as the propitiation seat, or again, the mercy seat. And this is where on the day of atonement that the blood of the sacrifice was to be spread or sprinkled. So you see, what John is illustrating in this tomb, which has turned into a sort of holy of holies, wherein the glory and light of the angels has overcome any and all darkness, is the full realization of God's once-for-all atonement for the sins of man. This is God's Lamb. This is God's Day of Atonement. But what is meant to be most noticeable, as Mary's concern highlights, is that God's sacrifice, that is the body of Christ, is nowhere to be seen until Mary turns around and John says, Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you, sir or Lord, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that she had spoken these things to her. He had spoken these things to her. So you see, Mary's grief, before, in a real sense, the very throne of grace, is quickly turned to joy. For though at this moment she had not yet been granted, uh, to understand what has truly transpired, which, is, which was signified by the angel's rhetorical question, Woman, why are you weeping? Well, her searching after her God, as this can be seen, is not nor will not be in vain. For while she had been searching for Jesus, in the end, Jesus is the one who finds her. Even more narrowly, it is the gardener, not of the graveyard, nor even of Eden, but God's gardener of the new creation who comes to Mary in order to cultivate within her both the gift of life and faith. And it is once he does so, once he opens the eye of her heart, that she sees her Lord and her God for who he truly is. And Christ does the same as we see with Thomas. For after this scene had transpired and the disciples told Thomas about the risen Lord, he responds by asserting, "...unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe." Therefore, in response, John says that God's new gardener of the new creation came to the disciples and he said to Thomas, "...reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hands here, and put it into my side." Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And, Thomas's, Thomas's, and Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So you see, it is only until Christ had sought out Thomas and cultivated within, them, within him the gift of faith Though in Thomas's case, his faith was mixed with sight. But, what Thomas, but when he, Christ did this, Thomas then could truly see, again like Mary, who his Savior is, really is. That is, as his Lord and his God. Thus simply, Thomas is seen here as confessing what every true believer of Christ must confess when Christ cultivates within them the gifts of life and faith that being the true humanity of Jesus as Messiah and his true divinity as God the Son. And may I say, beloved, this is exactly why, again, the Apostle John penned this book. For he says in verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Therefore, beloved, the point being made here is that Christ, in searching out both Mary and Thomas and even his disciples, has assumed his role as the new gardener of the new creation. And in so doing, Jesus takes dominion over this new creation by sending out his spirit in order to cultivate within each and every elect of gods the newness of life via faith and regeneration. Which is why the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone believes, I'm sorry, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Thus simply, in a reversal of the first creation, wherein creation itself was made first, then man, in the second creation, the gardener of life, is recreating man first through faith and regeneration. Then, when all the sons and daughters of God have been made anew, creation itself, as Paul says, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Creation itself will then be glorified. But before we depart from this interaction between Jesus and Mary, what we must ask is, why does Jesus tell her not to cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father? Well, after making... Mary into a new creation by cultivating within her the gift of life and faith, what Jesus is now establishing, like when he said to Thomas, that blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, is how he, Christ, must be approached or accessed now in light of his resurrection and ascension and ascending, I'm sorry, and sending of the helper, the Holy Spirit, into this world. For no longer, like with both Mary and Thomas, is Jesus to be sought after by sight of his physical presence. But the only way for anyone to now lay hold of Christ is through faith and baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is regeneration. Or said differently, It is once once one is indwelt by God the Spirit that they have a more intimate union with Christ than just mere sight of His body. For when He sends His Spirit into us, we are subsequently brought into a fuller communion with our Lord by being made one with Him. But as with Mary and even the disciples, once the gardener of life has cultivated this newness of life and communion within us, we are subsequently sent out, even commissioned, to this world of darkness. But we are done so not alone, but we are accompanied by God himself. And this is exactly what is signified when John says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So you see this breathing forth, which is a recapitulation of the breath of Christ on the cross, which again signified the breathing forth of the spirit of life in Genesis, but in a new way towards the church. Well, it is done in this instance as the formal anointing of his disciples, even more the church in general, for our commission to be the light and bring the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To this world of darkness. And it is because we have received this divine anointing or the dwelling of God the Spirit in each and every one of us that we can authoritatively say in the words of Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you confess him as Lord of all, then you are forgiven. But if you do not, then you have no forgiveness with God and are judged already. So then, as we come to a close, what I want to direct our attention to for our final consideration of this scene is why Jesus shows his wounds to Thomas. For yes, he does so to help his unbelief. But even more, why Jesus shows his wounds is because this act portrays that his whole self as a man Body and soul was raised. Therefore, beloved, because we have not only been united to the death of Christ by faith, but also his resurrected life, then what Jesus is showing both Thomas and us is that so too will we be bodily resurrected into the glory, into glory as he was. Or said differently, though our flesh will see corruption, And then will our souls be in the immediate presence of Christ at death, as Paul says. We yet, in our Lord's return, will be made whole again, when, like Christ, our bodies will be raised to glory. This being exactly what John asserts elsewhere when he says, But we know that when He is revealed, when He comes again, we shall see Him as He is, the resurrected, glorified Lord. And it is then that we shall be like Him. We will participate in this very resurrected, bodily resurrected glory. So as I mentioned our last week, our greatest hope as Christians is not found in this life. The Apostle Paul declares again, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But because Christ has gone into this grave in order to overcome death by His resurrection, our ultimate hope, beloved, is in the consummation of the life that we have been given in our regeneration. For when God the Spirit came within us in order to bestow Christ's newness of life, what we were promised is that not only will this seed of life grow throughout our lives on this side of glory, this being our sanctification, But it will also fully blossom in the day when we will enter into our eternal rest and be made able to see the glory of God with our own eyes in the face of Jesus Christ. In the words of Job, with my own eyes will I see God, my Redeemer. But if one be here this morning and does not possess this newness of life, because you may think that there is no way Christ would save a sinner such as you. Let me first remind you that even to this day is the gardener of life, still saving sinners from the darkness of their sins by bestowing the gifts of life and faith. But even more, as much as you may convince yourself of how great your sins may be, there is yet no sin that is greater than the love and mercy and grace that is found in God. Let's come this morning to Christ by faith. And in so doing, you will find a Savior who promises to keep you until the day that where He is, you may be also. Let us pray. Lord, as we go through this life and experience the sufferings that are experienced in this flesh, in this body, it can be so easy to forget the promise, yet even the hope that is truly ours. For there will come a day though this flesh and this body for many may be failing or suffering or or whatever thing that may be endured, we are experiencing these things. We are those who know that when this body is sown in the grave, it is done so not in darkness, but it is done so knowing that what will be reaped is the glorification of our body. That in the coming of Christ, when all the dead will be raised, we are those who are promised. That when our souls are reunited with the body, that we will see the glory of Jesus Christ with with our own eyes again, and it is then we will participate in the very glory of our Lord. And it is then that we will enter into that eternal day of rest, wherein we will live a life in our bodies, a life wherein there will be no more curse, Which means there will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more decay. But the glory and love of our God will fill every aspect of our being. And our minds will be lifted in a way to see God and understand Him in a way that cannot truly be described or communicated in this life. For now, we yet see by faith. But then God will lift our minds. He will lift our hearts. And we will see God as Christ saw God. What a blessed hope. And it is this hope we need to be reminded of. Because it is this hope which will persevere us in this life. For it is this hope, just as God's power gives gives the very existence to our being at every moment, it is this hope through suffering which will endure us. Yet it will even keep us for when we will experience death, when we will face that last And yet, enemy, we will overcome him knowing that death will not overcome us. But death has been turned into only a means by which we receive the inheritance and consummation of our hope. That is why we do not mourn as those mourn with no hope but we more knowing that just as Christ went into the grave and was raised, we too will go into the grave and raise knowing that we, like Lazarus, our eyes will be set upon our Lord and our God. Let this be our hope as we leave here this morning. In Christ's precious name.